Well, Christmas can bring with it a mixed bag of emotions, can it? For some, uh, it's a joyous time of year of reconnecting with friends and family members, cousins, siblings, parents, and grandparents. Those relationships are renewed and enjoyed. Good food is had and gifts are shared. For some, it's a painful reminder of loved ones lost who aren't here to celebrate any longer. For others, it's a reminder of an upbringing and holiday happenings that aren't worth remembering or celebrating. Still, for others, it's a time to spend a lot of money on all those holiday sales. Maybe it's a reason to check out church. You feel like you need to be here during the Christmas season, and so you showed up. And if that's why you're here this morning, welcome. There's no shame in that. I'm really glad that you decided to join us. But Christmas has become complicated hasn't it? Our politicians talk about this so-called war on Christmas, and our cashiers aren't sure if they should say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. We've been working our way through the beginning of the book of Luke in our series titled Songs of Christmas, Uh, and so far we've seen Mary's song and Zachariah's song, and this morning we'll be opening up again to Luke Chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. So if you're not already there, uh, would you open up your Bibles with me? That's on page uh, 909 in the Pew Bible. Otherwise, you can open up a digital version if you have that. Or uh, if you have our Church Center app, uh, Dan talked about this last week, you can open that up, uh, follow along, and your sermon notes will be in there as well. Uh, We all come into Christmas from a variety of places, and so as we dig into Luke chapter 2, looking at the angels' song this week, we're going to be asking this question, what do the angels tell us about the message of Christmas? Let's look at verses 8 to 14 together. It says this, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Last week, Pastor Dan shared from Zechariah's song this sense of longing as the prophecy of John the Baptist and Jesus came to Zechariah. You may remember that he mentioned this period of 400 years of silence, right, as God's people eagerly awaited their coming Messiah. The last two weeks, we saw that that silence was cracked by the appearance of an angel of the Lord to Mary and to Zechariah, right, prophesying of the coming of that long-awaited Savior, the first prophecy in 400 years. Hundreds of years of silence as God's people waited on and longed for the one who would deliver them from their captors and set them free. They sat in a period of darkness and waited and waited and waited, and no one came. For 400 years, no one came. And then, suddenly, in the middle of the night, the darkness was shattered in a small field just outside the tiny town of Bethlehem. Let's look back at verses 8 
to 10. It says again, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Central Wisconsin is beautiful, right? We're fortunate to live in a place where we can drive just a few minutes down the road and we can be somewhere where we don't experience a lot of light pollution. If you've ever had the experience of being on the water uh, before dawn or in the woods or gathered around a campfire after the sun goes down, you know what it's like to be out there. The woods or water or backyard being illuminated only by the moon and the stars. It's beautiful out there, right? But it's dark. The norm for this band of shepherds out in their fields was darkness. They watched over their sheep in darkness where predators lurked. They embraced the darkness and in many ways they thrived in it. The shepherd imagery throughout scripture is obviously very rich, but it's rich because God embraces that and he transforms this idea of shepherding. But shepherds in the first century were widely regarded as people who weren't really good dudes. They didn't just embrace the lack of light, they embraced the opportunities that came with it. One commentator said that popular lore accused them of failing to observe the difference between mine and thine. They could prey on lonely travelers and were often accused of practicing the crafts of robbers. They were far from that group of sweet old men snuggling baby lambs that we like to picture. Uh, this group was likely a ragged group of nomadic people who were absent from society for prolonged periods of time as they tended to their flocks. In fact, because they were away for so long and because their reputations were so poor, they actually couldn't be legal witnesses in a court of law. Being a herdsman was, along with gamblers and tax collectors, one of the most despised trades in early Jewish literature. And one particular third century rabbi comments that there was no more despised occupation in the world than shepherds. These people embraced every aspect of darkness. Suddenly, in the midst of this darkness, light bursts forth. Not only does the angel of the Lord appear, but the glory of the Lord shone around them. That's the same glory that turned Moses' face so radiant that he had to cover it with a veil. The same glory that was present in the Holy of Holies, so the high priest had to purge himself of all uncleanness, lest he die as he enter. Boom, light emanating from the source of eternal light. Light came to darkness. Don't be afraid, the angel says. Yeah, right. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. These shepherds, the despised and the outcast, God chose to break 400 years of silence, to burst through with the greatest news in the history of the world to the outcast, to the sinner, to the least of these. This good news of great joy, and we'll get to be talk about we'll get to talk about what that means in just a minute, but this good news of great joy is for all people. The angels tell us that this is a message for all people. And when the angel of the Lord said that, when he said that it's a message for all people, he meant it. 
Right? God didn't suddenly appear in the temple courts or in the Holy of Holies where we might have expected him to show up. No, God came for the marginalized and for the sick and those of ill repute and for those who knew that they were broken and needed a savior. If you're here this morning and you think that you're too broken or too full of shame or too dirty for the hope that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, let me be the first to tell you, you're not. You're not too broken. Over and over and over in scripture, we're told that the message of hope that only Jesus provides is for all people. And that's true. It's for all people. You're not too broken. Church, uh, those of you who already call yourselves Christ followers, I want to challenge you with this too, because uh, those family members that you're going to run into at your Christmas gathering that you're not that excited to see, or those co-workers who you think could not possibly be further from knowing who Jesus is, yeah, they're all people. They're the all people that the angel is talking about right here, and they need Jesus just like you. From the outset of the coming of this Jesus, he has been all about taking the message of salvation to all people. He's been about turning the heads, or turning the expectations of the world and the expectations of those religious elite flat on their heads. See, it could not matter less how much your life looks put together when you come to Jesus. His birth was proclaimed in darkness, and until we place our trust in him, we're all living in that same darkness. So what's the big deal about this message of Christmas? What do the angels tell us about this message of Christmas? First, it's a message for all people. Second, they tell us that it's a message of good news and great joy. Fittingly, the third candle of Advent lit this morning symbolizes joy. And let's look back at verses 10 to 12 together to see what this message of good news and great joy is all about. It says this, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. The angel says four things about what's happening in the birth of Jesus that makes this good news of great joy. Three of those things come in rapid succession early on, and then we'll get to the fourth one. He says that today in the city of David, someone was born, someone, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And understanding these three titles for Jesus is critical in understanding why his arrival is good news. So we're going to talk about them for just a minute. First, Savior. Jesus' title of Savior tells us what? That we need saving. Right? Throughout history, God has sent many different men and women to fulfill a variety of roles. Prophets and priests and kings and judges and preachers and teachers and all sorts of people. And each one of them was uniquely gifted and uniquely used and equipped by God for a particular time and a particular function. When God sent his son, one of the three things that he tells us here about him is that he is a savior. That tells us that we need a savior. The Jewish people knew they needed a savior. All they had to do 
was look around and see that things were not the way that they were supposed to be. The nation of Israel basically didn't exist, right? Certainly things weren't like they read about in their Hebrew Bible. The kingdom wasn't like it was in the days of Solomon, and definitely it didn't look like what God had promised to Abraham and David, right? Like Pastor Dan talked about the last couple weeks, a kingdom and a throne that would last forever. Who was sitting on that throne? They wondered as they looked around. So when this promised savior arrived, you can bet visions of the overthrow of the emperor played out in dreams and that they quivered with excitement at the idea of their nation being reestablished. But that's not the kind of savior that Jesus was. Jesus didn't come to deliver the nation of Israel from the Roman Empire. That's not the kind of savior that they needed. Jesus came for something much greater than that. God was born man in the person of Jesus and ultimately, as we just talked about in communion, went to the cross on our behalf not to deliver people from the oppression of political leaders, but from the oppression of sin and death. Theologians talk about this saving process in three words that you may have heard before, justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? When you place your trust in Jesus Christ and you confess him as Lord of your life, acknowledging that you're a sinner and that Jesus' work on the cross as your substitute was sufficient, you in that moment are justified. God no longer sees your brokenness but looks upon you and sees his perfect son. And at that moment, you can be confident that you will be with God in eternity. But It doesn't stop there. You're not left to walk out your days in this weird state of being saved but still living like an unrepentant sinner, right? Jesus calls us out of that darkness and into a way of living in the light in a process called sanctification. It's this idea that by the power of Christ living in us and the work of the Holy Spirit, we're transformed into something totally new, into a new creation one that slowly but surely grows in faith and godly works, right? We're not growing so that we can earn salvation. Remember, that came at belief. But we're growing to demonstrate the change that's happened in our hearts and to praise God with our lives. Even still, as this process of sanctification goes on, the world is full of darkness and sin, right? Even the most sanctified people will tell you that they struggle with sin. They long for a day when sin will be no more and they will no longer disobey and stumble and fall. And thankfully, that day is coming. One day, we will be glorified with Christ. We will exist in a state where sin and shame and brokenness and pain are no more. Things will be as they ought. We'll exist in perfect unity with God and one another, no longer in this state of already saved and becoming more like Jesus, but still knowing that things aren't quite right. Why is this good news of great joy? Because we can be saved, we can be sanctified, and we can be confident that that day of glorification is coming. That's what our Savior Jesus came for, to save us out of the darkness of this world and to deliver us into the arms of our loving Father. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is also Messiah. The word Messiah could literally be translated anointed one, and in the New Testament, the word Christ replaced the Old Testament word Messiah. So quite literally, Jesus is the anointed one, someone set apart to serve God. Uh, 
Basically, throughout the Old Testament, there were three primary offices anointed by God, right? Prophet, priest, and king. None of the men or women in these roles filled them perfectly. They were all only human, after all. Some were good, but some were terrible. But no matter what, no matter terrible or good, all of them left God's people longing for something or someone more. Jesus is that someone. The angels declare Jesus as Christ or Messiah, the one who God has anointed to perfectly fulfill the roles of prophet, priest, and king. Again, the Jewish people weren't looking for a king like this, right? They were anticipating one who would, as we heard last week, sit on the throne of David, one who would overthrow Rome and restore Israel to its former greatness, This side of history, we know that Jesus' coronation as king didn't come in some grand ceremony as his subjects were forced to bow and swear allegiance to him. No, Jesus turned that narrative upside down, didn't he? Jesus' coronation came as he willingly submitted to a wooden cross. In his death, ultimately, Jesus was crowned king over all. Death That final enemy had no power over him. And in his resurrection, Jesus ascended on high and now sits reigning at the right hand of the Father where he's made a footstool out of his enemies. The angels said his arrival was good news of great joy, right? Death, sin, what a joke. They have no authority over him. He is king, period, full stop. And he loves you. And he died to save you. What news could be better than that? Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Christ. Jesus is also Lord. Lord was without a doubt the most offensive title given by the angels here in Luke chapter 2. See, Caesar had claimed that name Lord for himself. He was Lord of Rome. He was the political authority, the one to whom all swore allegiance and would obey absolutely. Not only that, the term Lord had usages in slave culture that existed in the first century. The title implied the absolute power that was exercised by the master over the indentured or purchased slave. That might make us uncomfortable, but Paul had no problem with that association, and he even went so far as to call himself a slave of Christ. This one who wrote the majority of the New Testament embraced it and said, I'm a slave to this Lord. Jesus, at his birth, is Lord. He is the one to whom all of creation will submit completely. Not Caesar, not the President of the United States. Jesus is in charge. Why is that good news of great joy? Well, it's good news because Jesus is a good, good master. Unlike earthly, broken systems of slavery where authority was sinfully taken and men and women Uh, created in God's image, were abused and used and are abused and used. And unlike broken political systems where positions of authority are used for personal gain, we have a Lord who is worthy of his position and of his authority. And so we willingly submit to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is good. Yes, he demands absolute obedience. Yes, he demands lives of faithfulness and submission. 
But when we fall short and when we make mistakes and even when we willfully disobey, he's not standing there waiting with a punishment and a look of scorn. No, Jesus is like the loving father of that prodigal son who throws dignity and entitlement to the wind and runs out to greet us as we come back with a warm embrace. That is good news of great joy. Savior, Messiah, Lord. The fourth thing thing is a little more subtle. The angel declares to the shepherd that this is the sign, right? He says, you will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. A baby. Not a conquering king. Not a mighty war hero. The savior you're looking for, he's a baby wrapped tightly in cloth, lying in a manger. Jerome, an early church father, captures the irony of the manger scene. He says this, He found no room in the holy of holies that shone with gold, precious stones, pure silk, and silver. He is not born in the midst of gold and riches, but in the midst of dung, in a stable where our sins were filthier than the dung. He is born on a dunghill in order to lift up those who come from it. See, Jesus came into the world fully human. Yes, to be sure, Jesus came into the world as fully God, too, and theologians will debate until they're blue in the face what it means to have this tension of Jesus being both fully human and fully God and how that plays out. We clearly see, as we look at the life of Jesus, that he was fully human and was fully God, right? He did things like eat, he was hungry, he slept, he needed rest, but he also healed people and raised people from the dead. But for the sake of our text this morning, uh, we're not going to get into that and parse that all out. We're just going to talk about why it's important that Jesus was fully man. This Savior and Messiah and Lord who was fully man, he was our example. He lived life precisely as we were intended to, should sin have never entered the world. He's the second Adam, right? The one who didn't fall into sin, But this Jesus grew up just like you did. Jesus experienced temptation just like you. Jesus knows what it is to feel deep, deep grief. He knows what it is to feel anxiety and to wrestle with the Father's plan. Think about those moments in the garden before he went to the cross. Jesus knew that he was going to pick up a cross and walk up a hill and hang there to die. The stress of that situation literally caused our Savior to sweat drops of blood. Jesus experienced all of that, all of the difficulty and the pain and all of those emotions and all that comes with asking the Father, is there any other way? He did all that and in the end he concluded, Father, not my will but yours be done. He felt all that we feel but he trusted that God is good no matter the situation. Jesus also interacted with difficult people. He knows what it is to feel the frustration of watching someone close to you make bad decisions. He knows what it feels like to be rejected and what it feels like to want someone to just believe the hope that Jesus offers and instead to watch them walk down a path of destruction. Jesus' humanity means that he can fully and genuinely understand where you are right now. He's not a savior who's far off and distant. He's not a king who sits on his throne and doesn't care 
for his subjects. He's not a Lord who demands blind obedience without showing compassion. This Jesus, he meets you where you are. His comfort doesn't come from a posture of condescension, but one of empathy. His correction doesn't come from a place of prideful power, but out of a desire for what's best for you. So what does all this mean for you? It means that no matter where you are, no matter what your struggle or your pain or your issues, Jesus gets you. And he loves you, and he wants a relationship with you, and he wants to be your savior, he wants to be your Lord, and he wants to be king of your heart and your life. You're not too broken for Jesus. I said earlier that Jesus' coronation was at the cross. The the full realization of these roles of Messiah and Lord didn't come until the resurrection, right? When Jesus defeated that final enemy, death. But today, Jesus sits on the throne and reigns over all. There is no better news than that, that Jesus sits on the throne, deliverer, king, master, and he wants a personal relationship with you. It's a message for all people. It's a message of good news and great joy. And the third and final thing we learn from the angels about the message of Christmas is that it's a message of glory and peace. Suddenly, this wild scene out in the fields gets even more crazy. These poor shepherds, right, sitting out in their field, minding their their own business, robbing some random traveler. All of a sudden, boom, everything is bright. And there's light, and they're like, what in the world is going on? Suddenly, verse 13 says, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God. There's this thing we do with angels and heavenly beings in the West. We tone them down, right? When you think about an angel, you think about this cute little cherub sitting on a on a cloud with a little harp or a little bow and arrow or whatever. Or you think about some beautiful man or woman with wings. Uh, That's not quite the picture we get in Scripture, right? When angels appear in Scripture, people are terrified. They fall down on their faces in fear and in worship. It wouldn't surprise me in the least to one day be in eternity and learn that every single angel and every single heavenly being in existence was in the sky that night, ushering in a new kingdom, wrecking the status quo. These shepherds were undoubtedly overwhelmed with fear and awe. Why? Why would such a heavenly army show up? Because to this point in history, God becoming man was the event Nothing in eternity past was quite like it, and the angels and heavenly beings showed up praising God in a scene that would blow our minds. I can't imagine that the event of those angels and the glory of God covering the sky and that singing and that praise has ever been or ever will be matched until Jesus comes again. Let's look at verse 14 to see what they were saying. It says, "This glory to God in the highest heaven." and peace on earth to people he favors. As far as the eye can see, angels, glory to God in the highest heaven. Glory to God in the highest heaven. God deserves glory for an infinite number of things, doesn't he? For the way he created people, for the way he doesn't destroy us when we sin repeatedly, for the world around us and the beauty that we experience 
every day, for common grace things like good friendships and amazing food, but for sending his only son to die on my behalf? Is there anything that could be more deserving of the praise in the highest heaven than that? I mean, come on. What kind of love is that? What kind of God would do this? What kind of God would send his only son to die on my behalf? A mean, nasty one like we imagine in our heads looking to play cosmic games with us and mess with us for no reason? No, of course not. That's not what our God is like. Our God exploded into our reality, taking the form of humanity to become like a shepherd, but not a shepherd that lied and cheated and stole, a shepherd who laid down his life for his flock, one who cared so much about his sheep that he willingly went to the cross and bore the sins of the world so that we might become righteous in his sight again. Glory to God in the highest heaven. This Savior, this Messiah, this Lord has come to take away the sins of the world. And it says, peace on earth to people he favors, or as other translations put it, peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, the Savior, Messiah, and Lord ushered in a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom marked by peace. Peace among men, for sure, we're called to that, but greater than that, peace between God and man. See, in our sin, there is no peace with God. Apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no peace. There's only chaos. But the one that the angels have announced, with him, there is peace like no other. Peace that surpasses all understanding. And once you feel that peace, you will never want to go back to life before it. Does anybody out there like candy? Cool, nobody raised their hand. Nobody like this illustration is going to fall flat on its face. Uh, just kidding. So, uh, all right. So imagine the taste of your favorite candy bar, because I know you all like candy. You're just too shy to raise your hands. Uh, for me, my favorite candy is peanut butter cups. So you got that taste in your mouth. All right, I have a story for you. So a friend and ministry partner was headed to South Africa to visit and explore the possibility of going into full-time missions there. And he came back and he told this story of a 40-something uh, South African man that he met. And while he was there, he had some peanut butter cups with him. And so he gave this man, uh, for the first time in his life, at 40-something years old, a peanut butter cup. Can you imagine? Can you imagine tasting your favorite candy for the first time uh, a little later in life? He took a bite And in his amazement and with his rich South African accent, he proclaimed, peanut butter cups declare the glory of God. (laughs) I don't disagree with him, uh, but the peace of God is kind of like tasting your favorite candy for the first time, right? Once you taste it, you never want to go back. When you experience the peace that Jesus offers, you too, with the angels, will declare glory to God in the highest heaven. So as we wrap up, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of all that we've talked about? The angels have declared these three things, right? It's a message, the the message of Christmas is a message for all people. It's a message of good news and great joy and one of glory and peace. What do we do with that? Well, church, cling to Jesus this Christmas season. There are things vying for your affection and your time and your energy everywhere 
You look, there's confusion all over about what we're celebrating and whether we should be bold or quiet so as not to offend. I'm not asking you to go into your workplace and put up a nativity scene just to cause an issue, but I am challenging you to look to Jesus in your heart, to acknowledge him when you're awake and when you're at work and when you lie down for bed, to let praise like that of the angels pour forth from your very being glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth. Be enamored with Jesus, this Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And if you're here and you haven't made a commitment to follow after Jesus and you don't know the peace that he offers, but you want to, come find me in the foyer afterwards. Talk to any one of the people who've been on stage today or talk to the person that invited you or brought you here, but talk to someone before you go. We would love to talk to you about how you can know peace that surpasses all understanding. At the end of it all, what do the angels tell us about the message of Christmas? At the end of it all, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending our Savior, our Messiah, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for the good news of the gospel and for the ways that you pour out your extravagant love on us. Father, as we're bombarded with messages distracting us from who you are and from what this season is meant to be about, would you realign our hearts? Would you remind us that it's all about you? Would you give us a deeper desire to know you and to experience your love in our lives? We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.